and this is episode two of our podcast, The War on Drugs. In this episode, we'll be covering the crack epidemic in the 80s, and we'll be meeting with a guest, Nicholas Shu, and the rest of you guys will introduce yourselves. I'm Eric. I am the commentator for this episode. Hi, I'm Tiffany, and I'm going to be summarizing this episode. And I'll be asking, I'll, I'm the direct discussion director, Nikolai, and I'll be asking five questions for our guest, who was an investigative journalist during this time in the 80s. Eric, does, does he want to introduce himself? or uh, Dad, do you just... want to say anything? Uh, yeah, I actually was not an investigative journalist in the 80s. Uh, I was an investigative journalist in the 90s, but about the 80s. So just to correct you on that. Also, it's pronounced Scow. Eric, you have to speak up, son. Because you know how our name is pronounced. (laughs) Yeah, that's my bad, Dad. All right, so... All right, ask me the questions. All right, so to start... At the height of the crack epidemic, the drug was available in which states, would you say? The, the crack epidemic was mostly in cities. Like, so it doesn't really, uh, it's not easy to say like what states it was in, but basically every major urban area in the United States in, in the 1980s had a major problem with crack cocaine. But I would say that in particular, Florida, and California were the two areas other than New York City and uh, Chicago where most of the drug trafficking and the organization of distributing crack cocaine was really prevalent. I was um, reading up along the lines of that and I um, heard about the Medellin cartel in uh, Florida and Miami and it was it was like fueled by the illegal trafficking and it was a bunch of like armed conflicts in the 70s and 80s I I read about Um, so the Medellin cartel is actually named for the city Medellin in in Colombia where Pablo Escobar was from and definitely a lot of the cocaine that was coming in illegally into the United States in the 70s and 80s was coming from Colombia, and in particular, Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel was responsible for a lot of that, but it wasn't the only one. But the first real big explosion of violence associated with cocaine trafficking was uh, was in Miami, and there were a lot of Colombians with the Medellin cartel in Miami, like killing each other over control over drug shipments. And it became like something that people would see on the news all the time throughout the U.S. Like in in the TV show, Miami Vice was made about that, for example. So it was part of popular culture, the fact that there were a lot of Colombian drug smugglers in Florida. And it was also a big problem in California. But first it was like in Florida. And then when they really cracked down on that, because so many... People were getting killed and so many drugs were coming in. The DEA started going after 
that problem and they created what was called the Southern Florida Drug Task Force and they basically shut down that pipeline of drugs coming in from the Caribbean into the Miami area and Southern Florida and then a lot of the drugs shifted to LA and the West Coast and then it became a real big problem like in LA and other places. All right, thanks. Would you say though that would you say that the drug was available in almost every state in the United States? Yes, it was definitely. So that it had a really vast reach across the country. Yeah, it did, and it was because it was there was a lot of money to be made from doing this, and it was something that once you took cocaine which was pretty expensive to buy. And it was at first like kind of like something that mostly people that had more money were able to afford and they used it like at parties and rich people used it and that kind of thing. And it was seen as kind of glamorous, like in the seventies and part part of the eighties. But once the drug traffickers realized that they could basically make it a lot cheaper and more addictive by turning it into crack cocaine, which people smoked instead of like sniffing um they were able to to make it a lot cheaper and that made it a lot easier to sell especially to like poor people in the inner cities that like really were vulnerable uh because of a lot of different reasons you know to the to the drug it was really easy for them to get addicted because it was so cheap and that's how the crack cocaine epidemic became a problem like first in the really big cities, but then like in smaller cities and then pretty much all over the country. Wow. Okay. And for question number two, because there's different like kind of perspectives on how the country dealt with the crack epidemic and how would you consider, would you consider that the, at the peak of the crack epidemic, it was being perceived by the United States as a health crisis Yeah, it absolutely was. I mean, there was a pretty famous incident where this basketball player, Len Bias, uh, died. And it was said in the news reports that he had died from smoking crack. I think it later was shown that actually it wasn't crack. But at the time, that was like a real shock to everyone because he was like a super famous, really talented young athlete that had been killed. And people were like, what is this new drug? And then, like, basically, as people realized that uh, that this drug crack was, like, so cheap and so addictive that there were, like, crack houses, it became, like, something that people would see on the news, like, all the time. Um, police raiding houses, like, in the inner cities where all these, like, practically homeless, but in some cases people that weren't homeless, but it just, like, basically kind of dropped out of their jobs or families and were just like living pretty much just to be able to smoke this drug and whatnot. And just like zombies, practically, it became like a real big media story. And so politicians said, we have to do something to stop this. And so there was a lot of pressure for Congress to approve much tougher punishments for people that were selling crack than any other drugs. So um, what happened was most of the people that were selling 
crack cocaine were like African-American and in some cases Latino men. And it became possible for people that had never been really in any trouble with, with the law before to get caught with like a small amount of crack cocaine like in their pocket and be charged with like being a, dr- a drug trafficker. And then they would get sentenced like a hundred times more harshly as it turned out than if it was like powder cocaine, which is what more white defendants and wealthier people were usually caught with. And so looking back at it, a lot of people felt like that wasn't really fair because it seemed like it was unfairly targeting poor people and especially like black and Latino people as opposed to white people. And you had at the height of the the problem with crack, you had so many people being killed um, from the, the violence associated with the gangs that were fighting over control of turf, like the street corners where this was sold and people that were addicted to it, whose lives were ruined and families were like totally ruined because of this. And then a whole generation of like young black and Latino young men, mostly that were put away in prison for like a huge amount of time. Ultimately Congress, like finally only just recently, like a few years back, reversed those sentencing guidelines and changed all that but it was like way too late so i would say that looking back at it it was the the media and the politicians that were reacting to what they saw as like a really serious problem that made it possible for the justice system to be so harsh about this that it created like another problem almost as bad as the original problem which was all these people whose lives were ruined because of like a one mistake that they made, um, you know, get trying to make money selling this, for example, and going to prison for like a lot longer than anybody else would, who was caught with like a slightly different drug. And so that is something that when you look at the drug war, you're not just talking about the gangs and the uh, violence, and you're not just talking about the addiction and the crisis that was caused, you're also talking about the the crisis in terms of the impact that it had on entire communities of people mostly in the inner city, mostly in big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., all over, uh, mostly affecting poor people uh, being locked up and the impact that it had on those people as well. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity, right? Exactly. Yeah, I was going to touch on that in question five, but you answered that really well. So I'm just going to ask um, the second part to it is, how do you think that the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity affected the epidemic? Did it help or did it cause damage to communities and a lot of African-Americans were caught with little bits of crack or, you know, a lot of people think that it was like kind of racist and stuff like that. Do you think that it helped bring an end to the epidemic? It's hard to say. I mean, it's a pretty complicated uh, crisis to try to evaluate. And I, I think, though, that when you try to do that really seriously, it's impossible to justify in retrospect how harsh these penalties were. 
And like I said, even the origin of the crisis in terms of like Len Bias dying, turned out there wasn't really any proof that that was crack. I think that there was a real frenzy where the media, which is always trying to find an important story and in, in some ways always trying to like do um, its job by talking about things that are happening, but it put, kind of put a magnifying glass on one particular drug over other drugs and and it enabled people to think that the drug was like a hundred times more dangerous than cocaine when really it was the same drug it was just mixed with chemicals that made it possible to smoke and it also when you do that and you break up this cocaine drug and make it less pure the drug traffickers are able to make more money because Basically, they can, you know, sell a lot more of it that way because they're diluting it. You know what I mean? They're, if you have like a certain amount of drugs that you're getting from like the Medellin cartel and you're like a gang distributor in America, if you like add the chemicals to it and figure out a way to make it something that you can sell in small amounts to like a whole ton of people, then you make, you're able to like make a lot, you can make that particular amount of drugs that you have, you know, go a lot further. And so that's why it was such a problem. And I think you, you can't deny that because it really, no drug had ever been so cheap before. And that's the unique thing I think about it that really made it different. It wasn't a hundred times more bad for you per se, but it was more addictive because the, the smoking of the drug as opposed to inhaling it made it something that only lasted like a little while, but produced a very powerful effect that was very short lived. And so it was more addictive because people wanted to keep smoking it to keep feeling the same way. And so on the one hand, it was more dangerous, but was it really a hundred times more dangerous? And is it therefore fair that all these people that happened to be caught selling that as opposed to the powder version were given much worse sentences? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I have a question too. Oh yeah, go ahead. Um, so when we're talking about Pablo Escobar, he's notorious for smuggling in a ton of uh, cocaine, and like I was reading up on it, he was like responsible for eighty percent of the cocaine in the U.S. and he made like thirty billion dollars off of this. But how long do you think it took before he was like detected? Like, what, like. What ended up happening? How did that get resolved? Well, the thing about Pablo Escobar is it might have been true that he controlled 80% of the cocaine that went from Colombia uh, to the U.S. at one point. But there there were other cartels. He, um, you know, was just the most flamboyant, most famous guy because he wanted to be more than, like, just a drug dealer. A lot of the other drug traffickers the smugglers the cali cartel for example which is named for another city in colombia those guys just wanted to like stay out of the newspaper they didn't want their names getting around they just wanted to make money and they they supplied a lot of drugs that like came into this country without ever becoming as notorious as pablo escobar but he was notorious because you know he would go around and like give away money uh, in Colombia to poor communities and like pay for schools. He basically owned a whole soccer team 
at one point and built like soccer stadiums and stuff like that. And he was so powerful that like when uh, he was like arrested and put in jail, they built a new jail for him in Colombia, which basically was like his own country club. You know, he could do whatever he wanted. He just wasn't supposed to leave the jail. It was. Yeah. Pretty- yeah. And there were no restrictions on him either. Right. He was he was allowed to just like live in this. I'm pretty sure he he paid for the construction of the jail. Right. That's absolutely correct, yeah. And so he was famous for a long time, you know, because, you know, he uh, had done so much stuff in public and thought he could get away with it. But the thing that changed that was when, because of how embarrassing it really was for Columbia, you have to understand Colombia had a lot of problems back then because there was a civil war going on. So half of the country was you know, not even controlled by the government or anything like that. And so there was no way they could really stop all the drug production because the government was like involved in a war and didn't control the whole country. But once they did realize that there was no way they could just take care of it themselves, they agreed to um, start extraditing uh, people like Escobar to the United States because that made it impossible for uh Escobar to just basically control what happened to his own, um, you know, future uh, if he was eligible to be expelled from the country and put in prison in the United States. There was no way he was going to be able to, like, enjoy his lifestyle anymore. And so that's as soon as that happened, he had to basically hide. And there was like a really long manhunt that was very famous and he finally got you know hunted down and and executed in colombia um you know in the early 90s i guess it was finally yeah that's uh, a crazy story he uh one, one of the really big things i remember in terms of like media was there was a bombing, right? And that was what kind of set it off in, in his like hometown in Colombia. There was a bombing and it was all over the news. So he, he at one point was like, I think he was trying to run for president and he even sent like his soldiers to attack like the national, um, you know, I forget the name of the building, but it was basically like equivalent to the United States Congress and sent in soldiers and and pretty much like a, with like even tanks i believe uh tried to like burn it down and take it over but after that happened like and they put out an arrest warrant for him there was this one prosecutor in colombia that wouldn't stop going after him and so in order to kill that prosecutor he bombed like a whole airplane just to kill that one guy and that was like pretty much like a desperate attempt by Escobar to try to like intimidate the government from trying to go after him. And it backfired because it was just like, people couldn't believe, you know, how evil it was that all these innocent people got killed just because he wanted to kill this one guy, you know? Yeah. That's a good example of his, how notorious he was, but it, it led to his downfall. Um, so one more question, actually two more. What do you think led 
cocaine manufacturers to begin converting it into crack because it was cheaper and um would it was it easier to get into the u.s no because basically you have to understand like the way the cocaine production process worked is that it would be harvested as leaves by peasants in the jungle and they would only get like a small amount of money enough to like feed their families and they would sell it to middlemen that would buy up all these leaves and then like in the middle of the jungle usually somewhere they would process it and turn it into cocaine paste and then that would be further refined and and the, the whole idea was making it as pure as possible um and is like impact packing packaging it up as like tightly as possible to make it as easy as possible to smuggle because unlike for example marijuana cocaine you know was highly concentrated same thing with heroin you know another drug that would come from uh, a plant for example uh that had to be refined and and concentrated in order to make it really powerful as a drug cocaine and and heroin as opposed to marijuana could be smuggled really easily because it was in small packages and worth like a huge amount of money a briefcase full of it would be worth like a million bucks or something like that uh compared to marijuana which is like a lot harder to make it into a small package and you couldn't get nearly as much money for it so that stuff would get smuggled into the US but then the way the networks worked was that people would sell it to other people who would sell it to other people and smaller and smaller quantities and every time that happened money would change hands but also increasingly likely uh stuff would be added to the cocaine to make it less pure and sometimes that was just done in order to cheat people so that like you could make more money by you know just mixing stuff into the cocaine so that it looked like it was pure but it really wasn't and that way you could just like make more money when you're selling it to other people right but when they figured out that by uh turning it into crack you could actually like <clears throat> really really like spread it out and sell it for a lot less money to a lot more people for example that all of that stuff was done here in the US that wasn't really happening in Colombia now it is true that eventually people in Colombia were probably trying out crack as well because they had like heard about what was happening but that was actually done in Florida and California and it wasn't done in Colombia so it was really more like just a way to try to figure out how to sell it to new groups of people because if you're just selling to the rich people there's only so much cocaine the rich people can do because a lot of them had jobs and you know like they can only do so much cocaine right and then what are you going to do with the rest of it so it was really a way that the drug gangs all of whose money was made selling this illegal substance were trying to figure out all right how are we going to sell to other kinds of people and that was by making it into something that was cheaper so a an american invention kind yeah, yeah. and was made in america and just one more question to sum it all up what would you say was the leading factor that helped bring an end to the whole epidemic what really was the most important thing in america that that made it go away well i don't
just like one specific thing that you could give credit to. Obviously, a lot of people, um, you know, that got addicted to crack, ultimately their lives were completely ruined from it. And crack could actually kill you if you like stopped eating and just all you did was drugs. Also, all the people that were locked up, all the people that got shot in drug deals, you know, it really wiped out like a lot of communities. And then there was just nobody left to do it. But the main thing is just that people continued to have an appetite for illegal drugs, but they were different types of drugs people were getting addicted to. And so a lot of people that were doing crack cocaine ended up starting doing methamphetamines. And then the people that were doing methamphetamines or speed ended up like, you know, uh, starting to basically uh, increasingly do versions of speed that were mixed with even other drugs. And a lot of, because of the advancements in science and because of the fact that there was so much money to be made making these illegal types of drugs, uh, a lot of uh, drug gangs were able to get access to cheap chemicals and just constantly figure out new uh, forms of drugs that were just slightly different that would make people feel like they were doing something kind of new. And laboratories in China or wherever would get in on this. And all different types of drugs started like being used by people that didn't even in some cases know what they were using. They just knew how it made them feel. And a lot of it was also people becoming addicted to painkillers. And so now we have something similar to the crack epidemic called the opioid epidemic, which in some ways is even more lethal than crack because, um, because of the fact that people don't realize that if, you know, if they buy drugs on the streets that it might have fentanyl in it, which is even cheaper to make than crack. And it's like the kind of crack version of heroin, for example, or the crack version of painkillers, um, a lot more powerful. And unlike crack, this stuff literally can easily kill you just like, you know, so much more dangerous than anything that's ever done before. That's why you have so many people that are actually dying from it. So unfortunately, I'd have to say the long answer and the short answer to that is that people aren't doing crack now because they're doing other drugs that are more dangerous in some ways. And all right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and for answering all my questions. Thank you for uh, hopping on and telling us and giving us some more insight on the uh, crack epidemic and what happened in the 80s. Yeah, thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. Bye. Goodbye. All right, so Tiffany, we can stop recording here. That